Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts, and I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Today's guest is Dr. Alex Sheely. Dr. Sheely completed her residency in pediatrics at the University of Kansas in Kansas City. She is currently a fellow in pediatric hospital medicine at the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids. Her research focuses on pediatric and adolescent substance use and exposure. She will be seeking board certification in pediatric hospital medicine and addiction medicine. Dr. Sheely will be sharing information with us about addictive substances, including nicotine, alcohol, and other illicit substances and their impact not only in adolescents, but in some of our youngest patients where we hadn't even thought about that in the past. A lot of information is out there on vaping and its significant increase and its impact on our kids. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Alec Sheely. Hi, Alec. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Hey, thanks so much for making time for this today. Oh, I'm um, so are- happy to. Oh, well, I really appreciate having an opportunity to talk to just really wonderful clinicians doing all kinds of exciting things. So we are going to get started and talk about how you got into the field of substance use, and we'll just start right there. Yeah. So during my residency, I went to an AAP national conference and I listened to a fabulous speaker, Dr. Gonzalez, talk about the opioid epidemic as it applies to the field of pediatrics. And I feel like that kind of like awoken this passion that I didn't know that I had about substance use and addiction in our patient population. And every opportunity I saw going forward from that point, I I took as far as doing a conference about opioid use disorder and excessive prescribing as a senior conference and or being the PEDS representative actually on our pharmacy subcommittee on opioid prescribing. So then I had decided to do a fellowship in hospitalist medicine. And luckily I have fabulous leadership that they let me get in on and really lead a project on marijuana exposure in children and teens, which which has been going fantastic. And I got connected with a wonderful adult addiction doctor. And I, I didn't realize that I could use the practice pathway to get addiction medicine certified. And it was just kind of this light bulb of like, well, this has been my sub-interest for years now, and this is something I can pursue, and I absolutely am going to do that. So you're early in your career. I am, yes. So I, I finished my PEDS residency. I did a chief year, and then now I'm one year down of a two-year PEDS hospital medicine fellowship. So I think the thing that I've heard from other guests is it's never too early or too late to jump in and Oh, yeah. Follow your passion and that you can make change even when you're somebody that's shortly out of training or still in training. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When I was in residency, I didn't think that I was going to do fellowship. I thought I'd finish pediatrics and 
just go be a general pediatrician. And then I, I reflected on what my passions were and I thought about those critically and I decided to do a Pete's hospitalist fellowship in second year of residency. And then during my first year of fellowship, I'm like, Oh, addictions also like also my thing. So this has actually been a decision made about a year ago for me. So let's hop right in to substance use disorders and addictions. And the first thing I was going to ask you about is what are some myths Mm. that we hold about adolescent and adult addictions? I think there's, you know, in, in pediatrics, especially one of the reasons we're drawn to peds is because kids are so wonderful and bubbly and bright and, you know, they, they don't really do anything wrong intentionally like until they get to, you know, that adolescent, that special adolescent phase. And then we kind of blame it all on their lack of a prefrontal cortex, um, their lack of good decision-making. But the average age of substance use for those who go on to have a use disorder starts around the age of 12. So these are very much our patients. And it can be a very uncomfortable topic to bring up in well-child visits. But we have to get comfortable bringing that topic up because for, you know, for the 80 kids that you screen that are not doing anything and they respond to that question, like, what? I don't, I've never done that. Why the, why are you asking me that? There very well could be one patient who smokes marijuana every day because they pick up what their parents didn't finish smoking and they don't know that that's bad or they're, experimenting and taking whatever prescriptions they can get their hands on. And the sooner we can intervene and help those kids out, the better it is for their life. Because preventative pediatrics is kind of a big deal and this this falls in there. Well, and I think when you said age 12, my eyes got super big. Um, you can't see that. On yes, they did. I could see that. But yeah, my <laughs> eyes got super big. I do remember one time mm-hmm. asking a younger kid, about substance use and have you ever tried cigarettes or vaping? And he said, yes. And I didn't, I wasn't expecting that. Mm -hmm. And then I said, so when did you start? And he said, age nine. And, Mm -hmm. and I said, how did that happen? And he said, well, you know, I would smoke my mom's leftover cigarettes. Yep. So um, I think we all have this idea about substance use. I think it's the mythology in the media and also just in literature is that somehow it's a, you know, the homeless adult that has serious alcohol addiction. And the reality is there's lots of people, adults and adolescents that are struggling that don't look like it. Absolutely. And, you know, I've had the privilege of visiting an adolescent treatment center and they shared their stories with me and almost all of them started at 12 or younger than 12. And so it feels awkward asking a 12 year old that you know, they're doing the sex, drugs, and rock and roll risk things. But for the kids that are doing it, it it can make a huge difference. Also, I think there's this perception, like when we talk about judicious use of painkillers, I have heard before, you know, oh, this is a good kid. I'm not worried about over prescribing because this is a good kid. Well, the Monitoring the Future study looks at adolescent attitudes towards various substance uses. And Another, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, I forgot a couple letters in there, but that survey looked at attitudes and use in 
early adulthood, so inappropriate use of substances in the early 20s. And attitude towards substance use in high school does not correlate to not misusing drugs in adulthood, meaning you can't tell who's a good kid. You cannot tell. They might be a good kid, but giving them one legitimate prescription for an opioid could trigger a use disorder. You can't tell who is going to become dependent or or have a use disorder later on. So you can't tell just from the kid. Thinking about, you know, in my practice, gosh, back in the day, we used to use a lot of Tylenol with codeine cough syrup. Yep. And then occasionally some Tylenol with codeine for pain. And that, mm-hmm. you know, I would say I haven't done that in a long time. But, you know, I think where we mostly see it is, you know, kids that have had surgery, you know, a femur fracture or something big, yeah. kids who might be on it following um, wisdom tooth extraction. So how mm-hmm. do we make sure, you know, even though we might not be writing that prescription, I mean, how do we make sure that yeah. that's not going to be a factor? And I guess the other thing is parent use, because that's often where the yeah. kids are getting it. Oh, absolutely. There are absolutely legitimate, there are children that need opioids to control their pain because they have, they have a painful disease process going on. And at that point, what's really important is talking to parents and the kid about how to properly use it and how to get rid of it when they're done with it. And I think that's one of the trickiest things. So first, trying not to overprescribe. And some states have instituted laws to help curb the overprescribing of opioids in acute pain scenarios, which very well might help. So first, appropriate use. But then once they're done with it and they don't need it anymore, how to get rid of it. You're not supposed to flush them down the toilet, which I think a lot of people do. Fun fact, you're not supposed to do that. It's bad for the water source. There are opioid take-back drives at pharmacies, but they only occur a couple times a year, and then some communities can choose to do them more frequently. So not all pharmacies will take back opioids all the time, and I think that can be a very challenging thing because of regulations. They can't take back a prescription that has already been sent out, especially if it's a controlled substance. That probably Um, varies by region, locale, state to state. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think even by county. So anytime I'd say as a pediatrician or just as a practitioner, anytime you know about a take back event, I would promote putting those notices out for any patient coming in through the door because you don't know who's got a prescription at home. SAMHSA data looks at where people get their opioids that they're misusing and the vast majority of them are from single prescriptions that either they got or a family member or friend got. So it's it's leftover pills that are just hanging out in people's medicine cabinets. So good so intentions, really, but misdirected. And I know in some yeah. areas, I think here is that um, some police departments do have take backs that you can do more regularly. But again, that probably varies by where you are. Right. Yeah, that, that varies by police department, by state, all kinds of things. So any anything that we can do to help promote that and make it more obvious to the public so that they know that they can go take their medications there and get rid of unnecessary things in their medicine cabinet. I was going to ask you about another topic that I think we are all seeing. We probably think is a lot less serious than opiates, and that is vaping. Yes. So vaping is a huge deal. There has been a huge spike in the last two to three years in the prevalence of vaping. Actually, 
so much so that the increase from 2017 to 2018 was the largest increase they've ever had in any substance use among adolescents. And from 2018 to 2019, the vaping of marijuana was the second largest increase they've ever had in a year. So this is incredibly prevalent. A third of, a third of teens are vaping. Like a quarter of them are vaping marijuana. So good for and, the uh, nicotine producers. Right? Yeah. Oh, oh, I I could get off on a tangent about my feelings about the marketing and that industry, because really the big selling point for vapes is you know they look like a USB. They look cool and sleek, and you can hide them from your parents easily, which is really appealing to teenagers. And they're flavored. And so the initial thought behind vaping was that it could be a smoking cessation. But the evidence is that it doesn't really do anything terribly significant in the realm of helping people cut back on cigarettes. And I am hesitant to believe that, let's say, a a 60-year-old male who's been smoking cigarettes for 40 years needs a vape that's mango-flavored in order to quit vape. There are many off-brand flavors that are like Fruit Loops. You can't convince me that that is geared towards anyone but children. Right. Um, Who, who's that for when it's, what was the other flavor I saw? It was like cotton candy. Yep, cotton candy. Like, really? And I think yeah. there's this idea, I've had several kids tell me like, there's, this is nicotine free. It's just vaping flavor. Oh, oh, what about that? A, that is the most frustrating lie. And I think the thing that gets me the most worked up when I'm talking to uh, representatives or people who actually have the power to regulate this, a third Actually, so it actually went down from a third to a quarter of teens who vape report that they only vape flavoring or they think that they are only vaping flavoring because that's that's the cool part. It's what flavor are you vaping? But the truth is Juul, J-U-U-L, which is the most popular vaping mechanism, is they don't make any product that doesn't have nicotine in it. So all Juul products have nicotine. And the Juul brands aren't, well, Juul is also not regulated. They are not regulated by the FDA as closely as other tobacco products are. So because they're not technically tobacco. When people have gone in to test the vapes that are labeled as nicotine-free, 99% of them actually contain nicotine. So if a teen is saying, I only vape flavor, they are being tricked into vaping nicotine. And now they can have a nicotine addiction and they can go through nicotine withdrawal without ever realizing that they are vaping nicotine. Well, and, and I had heard that because teen brains are so sensitive to nicotine, it doesn't yes. take much to do that. And then they're, they're getting hooked without really knowing that that was going to happen. That's correct. Right. And one pod is equivalent to a full pack of cigarettes. So they can get a lot of nicotine intake in a short amount of time. Excuse me, if they're vaping one pod per day, that's the equivalent of a pack of cigarettes per day. So whenever we ask teens about smoke use, I, I, I think many pediatricians now know that you have to ask about vaping because they genuinely don't view it as, like to them, it's not smoking because what you're breathing into your lungs is different than traditional cigarette smoke. You have to ask about vaping, dabbing, or using hookah, because to them, those are very, very different things. And they will confidently tell you, no, I do not smoke, but they vape. And having some kind of familiar, 
familiarity with the products so that you can use enough of the lingo that you understand truly what it is that they're doing. Do they, you know, do they steal a puff off of their friend's jewel every once in a while, or do they have their own that they've hidden in their car and they go through one to two pods a day? Uh, I think certainly from, I went to a conference and the speaker brought out a whole assortment of all of the different devices that she had gone into gas stations and purchased. And oh, it yeah. was astounding. I mean, they were, some of them were pretty and they were cute and they were bedazzled. And so I could see. I have seen a bedazzled one. Yeah. Yeah. So these companies, I try and tell kids sometimes like, you know, these companies are using you. They think that yeah. they can hook you and trick you. So, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily your fault, but these companies are, oh, no. are using no, you. It's, no, it's, it's creative advertising lies and really targeted advertising towards kids. And they have done a great job because use has skyrocketed over the last couple of years. I think the other thing that's pretty telling that we've learned over the last few years is that teens that vape are far more likely to actually transition to combustible cigarettes in their early 20s. So not only are they getting addicted to nicotine, they are actually way more likely to go on to actually smoke cigarettes, which is, of course, going to increase their risk of lung cancer and long-term lung disease. And that's sort of the argument that a lot of advertisers or legislators are like, oh, but it's to prevent cigarette smoking. Right. It's really not true. I have a hard time believing that they're good for cessation when data in adolescence shows that they go on to actually smoke cigarettes. So it's it's actually doing the opposite in our patient population. Right, right. So kind of on the note of interesting ways that kids get stuff, let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what people are seeing in the emergency rooms with ingestions, not only of the yeah. nicotine juice, but now let's talk a little bit about marijuana and all of its fun forms. So marijuana, yeah, nice transition. Marijuana vaping has become very popular, which is dangerous enough because there aren't very many true marijuana vaping solutions. A lot of them are like, are home done, which is going to dramatically increase your risk of vaping associated lung injury. As we have learned in the last year, those kids will present with rapidly worsening respiratory issues with some pretty profound chest x-rays. But in the realm of Marijuana, that's actually my research project, Michigan Legalized Recreational Marijuana in 2018. And in the time since, we have seen an increase in marijuana exposure amongst all ages, birth to 18. And what like, spurred our interest in investigating this was we felt anecdotally that we were seeing an increase in accidental ingestions in our young children. And, and so that started the investigation into what we have been seeing over the last five years. And what I have treated as recently as last week is these products are now more widely available and they're, they're legal. So there's, there's a decreasing stigma to obtaining these products. And even though there are regulations as far as how much marijuana can be in one package, the packages have to be, you know, quote, child resistant, but that really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Colorado saw that the average age of ingestions went from two to three with the child resistant packaging. So, you know, it, it just takes them a little bit longer to get into the packaging, I guess. What about um, those cute gummy bears? 
Well, exactly. I've seen cookie, brownie, nerds, nerd rope, gummy bears, like any, pretty much any candy you can imagine can be made with THC in it. And of course, you know, a young child that sees a nerd rope, they're not necessarily going to know that it's not for them because it's a nerd rope and they're going to eat the whole thing. And in reality, if, if you're an adult and you choose to do this, one cookie or brownie can have as many as eight servings of THC in it. So you're supposed to consume a, a small amount of it and then let the effects take in and then go at it slowly. But these kids, I have yet to meet a child who will eat an eighth of a cookie and then wait 30 minutes. <laughs> They're going to eat the whole thing right there. And then it can take as long as an hour or two before the effects start to set in. And they can actually have some profound neurologic issues and some temperance stability as well. So we've seen- you had talked about before too, about these kids coming mm-hmm. to the emergency room and these huge workups that happen yep, yep. because- Oh, absolutely. It looks like, well, it is altered mental status. Yeah, but yeah, they come in, yeah, they come in with altered mental status or I've seen- really bad ataxia. Many of these kids end up getting full brain imaging. They often get an EEG because there's concern for seizure-like activity. They can get LPs, you know, a full panel of lab work. And oftentimes these kids, you know, they might, they might be at their home or they might be at a family member's home. Maybe the family member had had products that they didn't disclose to the parents because they didn't think it was relevant. That's not thought to be brought up during the initial intake in the ED. So How young should we be doing urine drug screens now when we see altered mental status? Well, I, I think many ERs will actually include that as part of their part of their initial workup. And I don't think that's wrong, especially now in this era of increasing ingestions. I've taken care of kids who can be as sick as being in the PICU, getting the getting the full workup, getting sedated for imaging, getting multiple consults because they come in looking really sick and they don't know what's going on. I saw a teenager come in getting chest compressions because he was so unresponsive and he woke up during the chest compressions. Yes. And actually he was not bothered by the chest compressions. That's how much THC he had consumed. Um, And then I've had, you know, much more mild, you know, small children that didn't get into a whole lot, but they're, they're very unstable, kind of wobbly and have some bad ataxia and they need some hydration and just to be watched. So then there's the jewel juice that is the nicotine and then you've got the THC. And so I think one of the things that we have to think of when we're just doing our anticipatory guidance is to start, you know, we think about with are there guns in the home? But then you have to think about yes. what about the grandparents? And, you know, a lot of adults are using recreational THC and may right. right. And I think that's where our, you know, preventive safety counseling as pediatricians can really come into play. So when we're asking those questions about, do you have stairs in the home? Do you have baby gates? Do you have dogs? Who comes in and out of the house? Do you have guns in the home? asking about what prescription medications are available and counseling about safe storage, and then just working it into your seamless, nonchalant flow of asking about marijuana if you're in a state where it's legal, because many people have it and they don't necessarily think that they need to essentially treat it as a medication and keep it locked away. 
Now, I think because things are recreational, I think that equates to, oh, it's safe. You know, and I think that's an argument that a lot of kids have about THC use is that, mm-hmm. you know, it's natural because it comes from a plant and, you know, and it's, right, right. it's, it must be safe because now we can all get right. it in states where it's legalized. Right. Arsenic is also natural, but that's not good for you either. I think having honest discussions about long-term effects of brain development on any kid who's exposed to THC is important. Teenagers who use even recreationally on a somewhat regular basis are at an increased risk of developing schizophrenia or schizophrenia-like psychosis when in adulthood. And that's a real problem. That's going to drastically affect their life. There was an interesting study out of, out of the New England area published recently that actually showed that if there is an adult smoking marijuana in the house, even if, and this was looking at infants, even if the infant's of course, weren't ingesting the marijuana themselves. The vapors in the house actually are enough of an exposure in the infant that the infant can actually test THC positive. So I've heard that there's sort of a tertiary exposure. There's the primary exposure, me smoking, Mm -hmm. the secondary you, and the tertiary being what's stuck on the walls and the curtains and and residues. That's very much true for nicotine too. So we know that nicotine on surfaces can be absorbed by baby's skin. And I think we're discovering now that that is also true for THC and THC products. Babies can be exposed to it and and it affects their long-term brain development. Some long-term studies of birth exposure have shown that they have delays in their neurocognitive development and increased rates of ADHD and increased likelihood of going on to have a substance use disorder when they're older. So I feel like we should have giant billboards that just say, did you know? And just did you know? Them. Yes. You know, did you know? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I think about, and, and this kind of morphs into our other is what can pediatricians <laughs> do is, yeah. you know, if I've got 20 minutes and, and I, you know, the anticipatory guidance list is long. Yeah. I was just listening to the AAP new podcast and there was a talk on drowning and how that's the leading cause of accidental mm-hmm. deaths in kids one yeah. four. So, and, and when I brought up drowning, I've had parents that have said, when I said, you know, are you on any water? Well, I live on a, a river. I had one mom that was like, I don't have a pool, but there is a river, you know, <laughs> that, you know, that it's a risk, but gosh, the list becomes longer and longer. And, mm-hmm. and I wish that there was more you know, information that kind of prompted, you know, like public service announcement kinds of things that were just rolling that talk about these kind of things that are sort of inadvertent. Like nobody is, nobody thinks that infants should be exposed to THC or, you know, want to smoke or whatever, but this stuff happens and we don't really mean it to. Right. Right. I know. I, I, I like the idea of the, did you know, billboards because it could help counter some great misinformation that's out there. That might be um, an advocacy strategy. That might be, actually. <laughs> if we could, get some ideas. Money, we could get some money. <laughs> I know some of the things that pediatricians yeah. are doing, and in fact, at the Michigan American Academy of Pediatrics, we have a module that we're doing training, and we included doing mm-hmm. using the craft 2.0 yeah. or 2.1N. <laughs> and I think one of the things that really struck me, so on the craft are you, you know, have you been in a car? Are you using it to relax? Have you been alone? Have you done it with family? Um, have you gotten into trouble? That if they have two mm-hmm. of those, that the 
likelihood that they'll have a substance use disorder as adults is like 60%. So I don't know if sharing that with a kid to say, hey, if you have two of those, here's this graph. I don't know if it would change their behavior or not, but it certainly was a stunner for me. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like honestly, that's going to depend on the kid and what kind of I don't know, learner they are. I feel like the trick with adolescents is like, I don't think there's a, a one size fits all approach to counseling them about almost anything. Generally, when I approach it to adolescents, I, I start with, you know, more innocuous topics, just getting to know them. I just try to casually lead the conversation when, when they're talking about their life, what they do, what their friends do talking about their friends and what their friends do is so important because the driving part of their social identity is peer acceptance. So if they're the only holdout in their friend group, that's not vaping marijuana. They're so like, I, you know, make sure to not make a big deal out of anything, making everything as nonchalant as I can, as long as that seems to get through to the kid. So we shouldn't Sir? gasp. Is that what you're saying? Yes, like, oh my exactly. God, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, no. Don't clutch your pearls. And, uh, oh, no. Uh, you should never ask. Down. <laughs> I know, right, right. Well, and I do think that there's, right. I like your strategy of, yeah. you know, I know you, maybe you're not doing this, but, you know, if you're, well, you're I, I sometimes will start with that. Do your, do your friends vape? And, friends? Well, how about you, yeah. you know? who at your school vapes is almost a better way to start it now. Like yeah. who do you know that vapes? Because a third of teens are vaping. So they know someone, you know, now like by this point in my conversation, I've, you know, gathered all this information about them and I, I can use that to my advantage in my counseling. Oh man. So I know all your friends are vaping marijuana and you want to be a brain surgeon someday. So when they pressure you think about how, vaping marijuana can keep your brain from being able to fully develop normally and then you won't be able to be a brain surgeon. That has been generally well received whenever I whenever I do that. They just kind of gloss over and do the like, yeah, okay, whatever kind of attitude. I, I like that, you know, I, yeah. it seems like I remember from my MI training, like on the one hand, you want to be a brain surgeon and on the other hand, you want to fit in with your friends. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you want to get from here to there, just saying, you know, that's what you told mm-hmm. me. But, and I think trying to be non-judgmental, you know, is important. And the other question that I think is interesting to ask, and I get some, I think maybe a little leverage is, tell me what you like about these drugs. You know, to, you smoke a lot of marijuana. You said you smoke every day. What is it that you like about it? Rather than, oh my God, that's terrible. Yeah. You shouldn't do it. But tell me what, you know, yeah. what, what are you getting out of it? Because there may be an underlying problem that has nothing to do with the drugs. Absolutely. Right. So if, if they've got a lot of anxiety and they're telling you that they smoke pot to help take the edge off of their anxiety because they're super type A and they need to get fantastic grades and, you know, whatever else they come up with. Well, then man, like don't harp on them for smoking pot, help, help them with their anxiety. That way you build that patient doctor alliance and you can say, oh my gosh, that sounds stressful. Let's discuss if there's a better way to address your anxiety than marijuana. And I've sometimes used the strategy of, let's do a science experiment. It's really hard for me to do a couple things and not know which is affecting you. If we could cut back on your marijuana use and see if that might improve your 
sleep or whatever because and the other is i've had some kids that have had abdominal issues with a lot of excessive marijuana and i didn't know that was a thing but it can cause like yep. vomiting yes Yes. And I will say once they get to the point of cyclical vomiting, it is actually really difficult to convince them to stop because the marijuana temporarily relieves their symptoms. And it's really hard to convince a teenager that their chronic daily use of marijuana is what has caused all their vomiting because they associate this temporary relief in their nausea and vomiting with them smoking marijuana. Really, there there have been a couple treatments of cyclical vomiting tested, but there's really nothing yet that's concretely scientifically proven to work. It's really just stop smoking pot. And if and they're using that much, that's a, I mean, I mean, it's is, hard. There, is there an addiction? I mean, do people get addicted to weed? Absolutely. Yeah, people absolutely do. It's not nearly as prevalent as like, as an alcohol use disorder, but you absolutely can get, get addicted to marijuana. I think that's another general misconception is that that you can't. So that's a perfect segue into alcohol use because <laughs> I think that still remains the biggest drug of addiction. Yeah. Of course, there's binge drinking and yes. it's almost, I mean, I try and prep my kids going to college. You know, I know with my own kids, you know, what that college experience is like or yeah. you know, in my mind, the senior year bonfire <laughs> yep. is always dangerous. And, and pediatricians, what do we need to know about talking to kids about alcohol? Because, you know, it's out there in every show, TV. I mean, alcohol's probably. I, mean, I know that it's it's a huge part of our our teenage social experience, or at least that's that's the culture. I think the good news is daily drinking and binge drinking has actually been downtrending for the last last five years or so. So I I, I think that's reassuring that the really concerning use of alcohol is actually on the decline, but it is as many as like 18% of high schoolers do binge drink. I'm wondering with COVID and everybody and, being home, maybe it's harder to access substances, but everybody's right. like on their last nerve. I am going to be, well, well, and so I'm going to be really interested to see what the monitoring the future data looks like for this year with with everything COVID related, but there was concern at the, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic that people who used to have regular access to alcohol who have a use disorder now don't have regular access and they were going into withdrawal at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think, I think throughout as well. I think counseling kids or adolescents about alcohol use is tricky because it's so ubiquitous <laughs> and it's such a, a center point in so much of our expected cultural experience. I, I know there's the joke out there, you know, enjoy it in college because once you graduate, it's called alcoholism. And I think they're at a point where they're only going to listen to you so much and gearing the conversation towards their life motivations and keeping them safe. Because I do think it's important to put yourself in the position that you're on their side and you're not intentionally antagonizing what they want, what, what they want to experience with their life. That's my general approach to conflict of all forms in medicine is to make sure that I've made it clear that I've aligned myself on the side of the patient. I want to make sure that you are safe. I know that you aren't drinking now, but in the next year, a lot of things can change. And I want to make sure that you safely make it to our next appointment. So 
here are things that I need you to know. Don't get in a car with people that are drunk. If you're going to a party, have a safe way out. Have a designated driver and have someone who's not even at the party that you can text or call if you need to get out of there. Like have a system. I sometimes and, have talked. I've sometimes talked with kids about um, kind of a, a a safe word, if you will, with a parent. Yeah. You know, like yeah. If you text your mom that please come get me on mm-hmm. the headache, that. Yep you know, the parent knows I'm going to come get you. I'm not going to ask questions. Exactly. And we'll talk about it later, but thank you so much for doing that. And also the kid can mm-hmm. kind of have a, a cover so that you can say to their friends, gosh, I've got this terrible headache. I need to yep. go home. Or there's a family emergency, like some right. kind of excuse, yeah. like always establish an out before you go to any party or any situation, because you might be going there to intend to have a good time, but things can very easily get out of control. Right, and, and I think that's important for parents to know. Sometimes yeah. kids are at parties and people bring in alcohol mm-hmm. or other substances, and I mean, it's not your child's fault that, yeah. you know, that stuff got brought in, but they need to know about let, let's arm you with some strategies. And I think those are things that we can do to help parents and kids. Like, you know, your kid's going to be exposed to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless we have lockdown forever, then right, they, right. they're going to be back out in the world. So, yeah, I take the approach of, you know, it's fantastic that you aren't doing any of this now. And I don't expect you to do any of this now. However, things change. You might find yourself in a situation where things are different than what you expect. Like, I need you to know these things to keep you safe. Or your so friends. Can you can always use or your, your friends. friends. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned that you say to parents, um, or to patients, I'm your advocate. So let's talk about pediatric advocacy about substance use and what can pediatricians do from an advocacy standpoint. I mean, I know that a big part of what the American Academy of Peds does is advocacy. So talk about some of the strategies that you have, and is there something that, you know, the pediatrician out in the field can do? I think, you know, we're busy, and it's hard to keep up with a lot of legislative efforts, but as as much as you can every once in a while, just have kind of an idea of what's going on, what your local government is talking about. And I say local government because they make a huge difference on your patient population. Federally in DC, they can do a lot of big stuff for the whole nation, but states have a lot of control over, over substances. I also encourage getting involved with, with your local AAP chapter because I've had the opportunity to go to the state capitol in Kansas where I trained to talk to legislators about medical related initiatives that were happening. And I think the important point there is to talk to your elected officials because they, they can't know all like 100% of how every bill that they vote on is going to affect their, their constituents. Many of them are part-time. They're, you know, a, a local elected official, and they also have a job elsewhere too. So they've got a lot going on. And as a pediatrician, we can help remind them how children are affected by the legislation that they're voting on. I've also had the privilege to speak to local legislators in Michigan. I got the opportunity to try and correct some misinformation regarding vaping. And in in Kansas, uh, there was going to be a vote on how the state Medicare was going to be funded and what it was going to cover. And when we when we talked to the legislators, they did not realize that their plan was going to cut funding for thousands of children. 
And when we brought that up, they were like, oh, I, they didn't really. I mean, they're not, they're not physicians. They don't have medical right. knowledge. I mean, unless right. they're a physician. And, and I, right. do, I mean, you know, maybe this is another opportunity for really great motivational interviewing. On the one hand, you want to uh -huh. do the very best for your constituents yes. because that's the people you represent. And on the other hand, this company is doing X, Y, and Z. Is that really good yeah. for the kids in your, in your district? Right. On one hand, this is great for the state budget, but do you realize the downstream effect on the children in your state? And, and I think as pediatricians, that's so important for us to have a role to, to any degree that you can calling your representatives, your congressmen, because they don't, they don't necessarily know all the medical ins and outs. I, I guarantee when, when the regulations were made about recreational marijuana, they didn't fully think out how this was going to affect newborn babies or young children. And telling them your perspective can make a difference. Well, and I'm, I'm, this is not an AAP-sponsored podcast, yeah. <laughs> of full disclosure, but I would say I think one of the things that pediatricians can do, or if you're from another um, organization, is belong to your professional organizations like yes. the AAP or the American College of Family Physicians, mm -hmm. because those organizations can advocate and look at your, your state chapters, because they often are looking at legislation that's specific to your state, and they need mm -hmm. your voice. I mean, if a pediatrician calls a legislator and says, I don't think this is good for kids, that carries a lot of weight. So mm -hmm. if you're interested in moving any kind of measures that are child-related, I think using chapters is a really great way to do that. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Well, listen, I just want to thank you so much for your time. and Absolutely. Yeah, and I will include, I'm going to try and highlight some of the things that you've mentioned and also we'll include in the show notes some links to some of the references that you gave and some of the studies that you mentioned. Thank you so much and good luck with your program. Absolutely. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so, so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks again. I want to thank Dr. Alex Sheely for spending time with us today talking about substance use disorders, busting some myths, and offering some practical strategies and insights for how to prevent substance use disorders and some things we need to keep in mind when we are talking with parents and kids. So I have some takeaways. Number one, good kids in quotation marks may have substance use disorders too. Number two, opiate disorders often begin with prescribed medications. It's important to limit the number that you prescribe and tell parents to discard extras. You may have to check with your local area as to where you can discard these medications safely. Number three, vaping is prevalent and there's no such thing as nicotine-free vape juice. Number four, consider edible ingestions, both THC and nicotine, when you see altered mental, mental status, including in infants. You may want to think about a urine drug screen before you embark on a big workup. Number five, be persuasive, not judgmental with motivational interviewing. And you can go to motivationalinterviewaap.org and see some videos on how to do motivational interviewing. Number six, arm parents with strategies to keep their kids safe. And number seven, advocate both at the state and local government and make sure that you join your professional organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics and don't forget to join your local chapters. 
Thanks so much again for your time. You all are very, very busy people, and I appreciate you listening today. Just remember, we can all make a difference, whether we're just starting our careers or we've been into our careers for a long time, there's always room for pediatricians to blaze the trail. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and any thoughts you might have about future topics. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.